Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. And today's moment is from the ending of the chromatic fantasia and fugue, BWV 903. So what's a Fantasia, Christian? What is a Fantasia besides a Disney movie? It's uh, the spirit of your imagination. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Is that what it is? It's an improvisation. It's improvisatory. Are yeah. we talking about the musical form of the Fantasia? Yeah. Yeah. Right, it's, some, it's something that is more improvisatory feeling, right? All these notes are written down. It's not that Bach said, okay, this is chromatic fantasia and fugue. You guys just make up the fantasia, and then here's the notes for the fugue. No, he wrote the whole thing down. But it sounds kind of flighty and rhapsodic and uh, improvised. Maybe like a written down improv- improvisation. Yeah, and it could be exactly what it was. I mean, Bach was such a, such a high-level thinker and composer that maybe he really just wrote this down as he was writing it just like note for note of course he couldn't just like click open his voice memos app and do that or whatever i mean he didn't have any way of you didn't have any way of recording any audio he probably was probably something he played a few different times a few different ways and eventually saw fit to just try to write it down but it is it's interesting i mean like he was known to a lot of people during his lifetime more as a keyboard improviser than as a composer. Yeah. But the thing that's really remarkable about this particular piece is how chromatic it is, and that's how it got its moniker. We call this chromatic fantasia and fugue. Um, Bach probably didn't call it that. He probably didn't call it chromatic, but I mean, the way he wrote it, it's very chromatic. So like, what does that mean? It means colorful, really, in terms of what the word actually means, right? Chromatic. Um, coming from a Greek root, meaning color. So, colorful in music, a lot of times we would say that has to do with um, the different keys that are used, or like the variety of different out-of-the-key notes there are. If you look at a page of sheet music, usually, this is getting a little into the weeds here, but usually you don't see too many extra accidentals, which are notes that are out of the key, but this piece has tons. And really what that means is it's just kind of all over the keyboard and all these different keys. It doesn't really feel like it stays in one key for very long. It's kind of all over the place. And tons, that's, yeah. Yeah, tons and it, of... I like to think of this as being really like thorny or um, crunchy dissonance in this piece. Yeah, if you want if you want your musical composition to sound very smooth, you might write something in like the key of C major on the piano, that's all the white notes. And then your piece of music itself to be very smooth should have no sharps or flats, right? If you want it to be really, really smooth, probably you'll just have C D E F G A B C, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, if you want something to sound very unresolved and dissonant, you should create it entirely out of 
what's called a diminished chord and a bunch of different diminished chords. And that is basically like the if you take a minor chord and make it even more minor. <laughs> I won't get into super specifics, but it's like it's more minor than minor. So it's it's crunchy and it's kind of angry sounding and doesn't sound resolved. In in the terms of uh, musical distance between intervals, you could say that like a major chord is pretty wide. A minor chord, uh, one of those uh, one of those intervals is, is less wide. The one from the first note up to the second one. Yeah. Um, and then in a diminished chord, the whole thing is scrunched even more. And um, that's kind of a way you could describe diminished chords as being just really constricted and spiky or something. Yeah. So if you were to write a whole piece based on just diminished chords, I mean, don't, I don't think it would ever sound resolved. Now, that's not exactly what Bach does here. I mean, there's some moments here where there's plain old minor and plain old major, but and it is in a plain old minor key, technically, if you want to talk about what key it's really in, which means where it leads at the end of its phrases and where it ultimately gets to and all that stuff is D minor. But yeah, tons of diminished chords in here and tons of scales up and down that uh, have different accidentals on them going up than going down, which is another technique composers like to use to keep some, uh, some interest going and to change some things up. When you listen to the first like few minutes of this, it really does not feel grounded at all because of all those things. It's pretty remarkable. Even for Bach being being really good at and really loving like complicated dissonance like this, this goes on for a long time before it really even settles anywhere. The thing I love the most about it is the very, very end of the fugue, so the end of the whole like 10 minute long piece. But when the fugue starts, well, like we said before, now the Fantasia part is over, so that is the more rhapsodic, sort of um, unrestrained, floaties type stuff. That's over. And then the fugue starts, so it seems a little more rhythmic, and it seems like it's kind of stuck in a more of a box now. But it's still chromatic, though. It still doesn't feel like it stays in a normal key. These notes are hard to follow. The level of unhookedness that this music has to a harmonic center at the beginning of this fugue reminds me very much of German composers of the early 20th century. Uh, because, and, which is crazy, because that's sometimes people say that Bach was way ahead of his time harmonically. I think that's that's pretty fair to say. But then he al he always had to bring it back at the end, you know. But when you start this fugue here especially if you hadn't just listened to the, the introduction before it, it's, you have no idea what, where the center and the grounding is. My favorite moment comes from the last few measures of the whole thing, and that's where we have this descending line in octaves in the bass. Sounds like this. I just love that descending line. We had it a little bit earlier in the piece, but it wasn't so strong sounding. And sure enough, it starts with a diminished chord uh, in the right hand, while the left hand is doing the um, this sort of like really adamant sounding walk down uh, down some notes. There, it sounds angry, kind of. Then that 
final cadence ends on a major chord, actually. We've talked about that a little bit before. It's called a Picardy third. Picardy third is when you have a piece that's in a minor key, but the very last chord, you make it a major chord to give it a sort of sense of brightness at the end. Watching this video of Menno van Delft playing this for the Netherlands Bach Society was a real treat. I encourage you, the listener, to check that out, which we've linked, as we always do, in the show notes. It seems kind of like a wonderfully intimate setting. He's playing it on a stage, but it's really actually just him uh, surrounded by like six or so people just sitting around him playing this, and that's it. And really, that's there's a good reason for that in terms of the instrument that he's playing, which is called a clavichord. You might have noticed that this sounds kind of like a harpsichord, but almost more mellow, kind of more guitar-like maybe. Christian, you mentioned um, before we started recording that you thought it kind of sounded like a sitar almost. Yeah. Yeah, in some ways the color is kind of like that. But if you look at the instrument, it looks like a small piano keyboard. And it's just like a little square. It's like a rectangle-shaped instrument. It's pretty small, smaller than even a harpsichord. And it works, I think, similarly to a harpsichord, but it's it's a little different because there's a little metal, like a little metal piece that strikes a, uh, or that really kind of brushes the string, so it's a mellow sound, even mellower than the plucking of the harpsichord sound. It is a nice contrast to the harpsichord that we hear so often. I mean, we, we often hear the harpsichord in the Baroque ensemble right the orchestra alex we hear it like yeah we hear the harpsichord in there and even in that context the harpsichord is a little on the soft side and you hear it for its percussive yeah rhythm it it kind of sounds sparkly that's how you can kind of hear it in the texture of an orchestra the harpsichord kind of has a sparkle to it because of that that um plucking of that of the string And the clavichord wouldn't even work in those big orchestral settings, you know, because it would be too soft, more like a household instrument. Yeah, totally. It was kind of built for that. It was built for just practice. I don't think it was really meant for much of a performance unless maybe a household small performance in a living room or something like that. Or like you see here in this video, a performance maybe in a hall like where they are, but for a small amount of people sitting right around the instrument. great performance here and he really gets into it i mean watching a solo keyboardist is always one of my favorite things um we had the english suite number one in a major a few episodes back and that was really delightful to watch her work on that it's just there's something about the solo keyboardist that you can really see them getting into that flow state kind of when they when they're working it's all on them, they don't have to stick to uh, the beat of a, of a conductor or to try to follow along with an ensemble, which is a beautiful thing in its own right to see, you know, an ensemble do their work together. It's really great. But when you get to see a soloist, it's another thing entirely. And and when I say flow state, I mean, like, I'm talking about this sort of, I guess it's a psychology term, which is like getting into the flow of something. I mean, it can be, it doesn't have to be music. It can be any task that you're doing that typically has some kind of rhythm to it where your body gets into a flow and the, the brain and the body are working together to be like basically in another zone of existence <laughs> for your brain, right? And you kind of lose track of time in a flow state, I think. 
as part of it. It's kind of a vague term, but it refers to a lot of different things that can happen in your brain. But the gist of it is you're in the zone, right? It's something that's coveted by creative people to like, can you get into that state where you don't have to think about it? It just happens. Yeah. Kind of also could be said to happen when, for some people, when you exercise, like physically, you know? Yeah, especially something like running where or biking or whatever, um, where there's an aerobic quality to it, right? Like mm-hmm. there's some kind of rhythmic, like, action that you're doing that is the same speed. And then you really get, in, you just get into it and you kind of get lost in it. Yeah. But it's like you said, Alex, it's applied also to things like creative work, like playing an instrument or composing. Yeah, especially something skill-based because then it's like when you get in the zone, so to speak, you are doing something, your brain is working at a high level while also doing something. It's like there's a high level to it, right? But then there's it's also doing something very base, which is just like this rhythmic function of it, right? But I also think you can get into a flow state that's not rhythmic, like what you just said, Christian composing. That's part. That's something that I've definitely felt that I'm just in the zone doing. So it's kind of anything that you can get in the zone doing. Yeah, this is a coveted and rare thing for a lot of uh, people who are doing artistic work, and sometimes it just you just can't access it for some reason, and you're thinking too hard or something like that. Yeah, when I was looking up stuff uh, on the flow state to talk about for this episode, I saw that most of the search results are not like talking about studies about the flow state, but most of them are like how to access it. You know, it's like articles on how you can get the flow state. I didn't really realize it was going to be such mm. a, like something people hope to achieve basically. Yeah. It's hard. I I have a composition mentor at UCLA by the name of Richard Danielpour. And his, his take is that when you're really trying to get something done, like composing a piece of music, you must just, start writing notes down don't think just act he said like Mm -hmm. an animal don't think just do it and this for me anyone who knows who knows me and same with you alex i'm sure it's like it's a personality thing but this is a difficult advice for me to take because i really like to think things out sometimes it takes me a really long time to do something like write a piece of music because there has to be all these stages in my mind but that's not the flow state the flow state is just to just go. Right. And uh, sometimes it doesn't work when you try it. And sometimes it it doesn't happen because you didn't try it. So you just yeah. have to and, try. And it happens because, because you're in the zone, right? And that means that when you are doing something creative, like composing, you might get stuck. You might ha- come across some writer's block, you know? And it's probably more likely to have some kind of a flow state when you are doing something like what you see here which is like performing on an instrument, a piece that you've practiced a bunch of times. You have such a thing called muscle memory. This is a common thing that all musicians uh, know about because it's something that happens when you practice. It's when you practice a piece of music and you begin to know it well, it's almost like your fingers know where they're going without you trying. And it's called muscle memory, but I mean, like, to be perfectly particular, it's not really your muscles remembering, right? It's your it's your brain remembering the movements of the muscles, right? Yeah. And that's how practice works. That's how you can sit down at a piano and play something that you didn't remember that you remembered, right? But you're like, oh yeah, I guess I remember that. I just kind of know what's happening now. Like your brain just does it. And 
I'm sure that so many of these musicians in these Netherlands Bach Society videos and, and others that you see who basically any great musician is going to have practiced a piece of music so well to be able to perform it this well that they will just know it. You know, they'll have the muscle memory. Probably pretty easy to get into a flow state in that sense. Yeah, and this is why people who have not performed professionally in a while, sometimes playing older music that they knew from a long time ago is mentally therapeutic. And there's been studies done about this because music is an activity that engages many different parts of the brain. And more so than just like speaking or learning a language or doing other activities, music connects those things. Yeah. It connects the physically active part of your body. It connects often the language part. It connects so many different parts of your brain, the timekeeping, you know, the memory, it's all there. And they've done studies on people with advanced neurological disorders and found that music therapy is really useful for those people. Some of them, let's say that they were, they used to play the piano or something, and some of them can't do hardly anything, but then they can remember a piece, a full piano piece and perform it and get through it when they might not even be able to remember other things like words or something. Yeah. It's really, really remarkable. Yeah. And even if they, even if it's people who aren't really musicians, it can be a part, part of music therapy can just be a movement based thing. It could be like dance. It could be like playing some piece of music that you remember dancing to when, uh, you know, you were a teenager or something. And if your mobility is really bad at old age or whatever, then sometimes that can actually help because it's rhythmic and it's because it's learned in the brain from such a long time ago. Yeah, music has all these, this is, music has all these interesting powers, you know, like yeah. neurologically that are so remarkable, which always makes me hopeful that music is is something so important to human existence, you know, uh, going against the theory that here, just sort of spitballing, going against the theory that music is just simply an, a thing that humans do just to you know, attract people or to have fun or something, but it's definitely more than that. You know, it's music is music accesses something like neurochemically that's very holistic. So it must be that music is something like inherently tied to our human existence. It's not just an extra little skill that we can learn, you know. Right. It's not just something like that we evolved to learn that's that's just kind of fun. No, it's it's a lot deeper and more connected than that. Yeah, it's more Any, than that. Anytime there's any explanation for something that's overly simplistic or reductionistic, then you probably know it's it's not right. <laughs> right, like the the argument that music is is a basically biological extra appendage, like yeah. it's a thing that happened accidentally because of our relationship with sound and voice and things like that. But that's so that whatever truth to that statement that there is. It's so not the right way to frame what music actually is to us now, because music is music is so much more to the, literally, music is so much more to our brain than that. Yeah. And now here is the ending of the fugue from the chromatic fantasia and fugue in D minor.
If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of this piece, please see the link in the episode description to see the performance of the Chromatic Fantasia and Fugue in D minor. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. And find us on social media. So Christian, next week is going to be episode 30. Yeah. And we just want to thank you, the listener, for sticking with us. And uh, thanks for being a part of this. Yeah. So for our 30th episode, I want to look at the cantata Aus der Tiefen Rufe Ich Herr zu dir, BWV 131. It's one of my favorites, but it's one of those, like, there's a few we've talked about before that just, like, every single part of it is something worthwhile to look at. It's one of the uh, earlier cantatas, and because of that, it has a lot of interesting experimental stuff going on. And because of that, and in celebration of our 30 episodes, I'm going to uh, instead focus on a miniature moment in each of the uh, movements of this cantata. So it'll be a little blow-by-blow synopsis of the whole thing and why we love this one so much. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 